This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of December the 5th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. No one disputes that Indiana residents rank very low among all Americans in terms of their health. The research is overwhelming. The operative question which will be posed to Indiana legislators in their budget writing session beginning next month is to what extent the state should try to intervene and do something about it. Improving public health has not been a top priority for Indiana lawmakers in recent decades for reasons we'll hear in a moment, but it has become more clear in recent years that having a populace struggling with obesity, smoking, chronic diseases, and early mortality is stunting the state's economic potential. Last year, Governor Eric Holcomb convened a special commission to conduct the first comprehensive assessment of Indiana's public health system in more than three decades, and he loaded it with a collection of all-stars from the medical, public policy, and political community. It was co-chaired by Dr. Judith Monroe, former state health commissioner and current president of the Atlanta-based CDC Foundation, and by former state Senator Luke Kenley, the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee from 2009 to 2017 and one of the most powerful holders of state purse strings for many years. This summer, the commission released its findings and recommendations. Its overarching proposal is that the state increase public health funding from about $55 per person, which ranks 48th in terms of state funding per capita in the nation, to $91 per person. That would cost another $242.6 million per year. Kenley's job now is to convince skeptical state legislators that this added expenditure is worth it. In this week's edition of the podcast, Kenley will discuss his strategy as well as why the state's public health spending has been so relatively meager up to this point. And we'll also be joined by Dr. Christina Box, Indiana State Health Commissioner, to discuss the need to improve the health of Hoosiers and how to best deploy new funding. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Luke Kenley, former Indiana Senator and Chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, now co-chair of the Governor's Public Health Commission. Thanks for making time today, Luke. Hey, good to be here, Mason. Thank you. And Dr. Christina Box, Indiana State Health Commissioner. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Box. Thanks for having us. I I was saying before the, uh, as we were just getting together for the interview, I I feel like I know you because I've been watching you (laughs) for the last three years (laughs) in what may be the worst soap opera ever in internet history. But it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you also. So I want to start with a statistic that I, I think you guys use when you're trying to make a case for increasing funding for public health. So according to the Trust for America's Health, Indiana ranks 41st nationally for public health. Can you unpack this, Dr. Box? What do we mean in the context when we say public health? How is Indiana unhealthy? So it looks at health metrics like our obesity, our smoking, our um, immunization rates, um, diabetes, et cetera. But most importantly, it looks at the delivery of public health services across the state, like the amount of funding that's put into public health, the emergency preparedness of the state, and and sometimes policy that the state has that is favorable toward public health. 
And here's a second statistic, and I think we just touched on that. Indiana's state government spending on public health efforts ranks 45th in the nation. What is the state not spending on that other states do or that other states do to a greater degree? So in all honesty, in the state of Indiana, about 70% of local public health um, spending comes from the local governments. And the rest of it comes across the state of Indiana from state funds. Um, Whereas in a lot of states around the United States, the bulk of the funding will come from the state itself. And then the local government supplements that spending. Okay. So it's going to turn around Mm -hmm. on its head, basically. Yuri, that's exactly right. It's almost an inverse ratio of what the normal pattern is. And really, it's not due to anybody's fault. Um, Since World War II, probably the the biggest thing that we might remember people today is the the polio vaccinations that were run through the public health system in the 50s. But um, over the years, Indiana legislature has assigned statutory duties to local health departments to execute public health needs and take care of them. And but never did any funding. So that fell to the local government unit to have to come up with the money. Well, if, as you analyze Indiana, we've got 64 counties of less than 50,000 people. And of those 64, 30 are less than 25,000 people. So you do not have either the asset base or the personnel base in terms of the types of citizens you have in those rural areas that can deliver anything. And by the time the county council and the county commissioners have funded up the roads and the jails and the sheriff and the people that work in the courthouse, they have no money left. And so just as a matter of almost attrition, Indiana has fallen to the bottom because uh, we don't have a a plan that delivers public health in a coherent way. Gotcha. And and this is something that maybe not is completely specific to Indiana, but is different than what a lot of states do. Yes, there are a lot of variations around the country. And some states actually just run the health departments, the local health departments from the state house. And they're a state entity. Uh, As our commission kind of reviewed this, we were all pretty committed to the fact that the local health department is probably the best place to deliver the retail service. And we just need to find better ways to support them. And so that's the premise on which our structure of our plan is built. Great. We're going to get to that here in just a second. I want to ask about you. So, Luke, you were a member of the Indiana Senate from 1992, 2017. That's right. Correct. I you got were- a 25-year pen. Is that true? You got a pen? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I think you deserve a pen. You were... Uh, the chair of the Indiana Senate Appropriations Committee from 2009 to 2017. Can you give us an idea of what that job is? Well, of course, the governor introduces his budget to the legislature uh, every other year. And then we do two-year budgets and it goes through the House and the Senate. And then you have kind of a small group of people that work from there and actually sit on what's called the budget committee. And the budget committee has a member from each of the four caucuses, House and Senate, plus the governor's representative. And so those folks are pretty well uh, in control of what goes in the budget, what doesn't go, what are the amounts, and how much funding do you do? And so during the time that I was there, Indiana kind of distinguished itself um, by becoming a more business-friendly state. We readjusted all of our tax laws, for example, took away the inventory tax, which was a terrible drag on business. And we eliminated the inheritance tax, but we did other things that would help to make Indiana be a better place to work and live and attract good companies to our state. 
And we've made probably a, a truly valiant effort in that regard, because if you look at the last census, Indiana is one of the few states here in the Midwest its population actually grew during the last census. And I think it's because we worked hard on education, higher education, uh, the road funding bill with that type of emphasis, all of the economic emphasis that we have. And probably the one area that touches everybody's life that we have that just kind of never came to our attention until we had to go through the pandemic just to see how bad things were was a basic public health program. And so that's how we ended up with the commission. I recall, I mean, had from since I've been back in Indiana, <laughs> this, is, this goes back to our conversation before, since 2009, I have, I have heard all kinds of things about how unhealthy Indiana is. How did that not filter down to you guys at the budget level? Well, I, I, I don't think it was, I think it was uh, a focus on the basic economic development agenda uh, with focusing on education as a primary source of workforce development. During that time, the share of expenditures in the domestic product of Indiana, the Indiana's gross product, healthcare in 92 was about 6% of our spending. Today, it's about 20%. So I think the ability and the value and the treatment you can get out of healthcare has changed dramatically during that generation period of time. I'm sure Dr. Box has a better perspective on that being uh, the commissioner of the health department and, and being a doctor, but uh, that's the perception that we had. It just it just didn't rise to a level of significance until the pandemic hit, and we suddenly realized, man, we need some help. And I thought <clears throat> in the beginning that perhaps uh, I was a somewhat skeptical about getting involved in this, but I thought perhaps this is just an effort to review what happened in the pandemic and to be better prepared for an emergency going forward. And in reality, the entire system, and I think Dr. Box and the people at her office knew this going into it, needed to be revisited. Indiana needs to do a whole lot better. There are many states that do much, much better, and we like to think we're one of the people that can do things right. So we need it. it hopefully the timing is right to really consider the issue. I think one of the first things I did when I started in 2017 was to go around and visit every local health department, 94 of them in the state of Indiana, now 95. And in all honesty, the truth is, if you've seen one local health department in the state of Indiana, you've seen one. Everyone was different. They have anywhere from 850 employees or more at Marion County down to sometimes zero or two full-time employees. So it, it really is dramatically different, and it depends on the funding. And when that comes from local property taxes, you can see how that disparity really becomes a, a major part of this. And again, and as you, you said, I mean, about two-thirds of Indiana's counties have 50,000 people or less. That's right. So th that sets up, and actually, that's going to be one of our better selling points, I think, with legislators who are going to be reluctant to spend more money on anything, especially a significant expense like we're talking about here. I think that this will end up being the best thing that has been done for our rural communities and delivering rural health, which is a real weak area all over the country that we will probably have done in many, many years. Going back real quick to, uh, to your former position, is it fair to describe you that you were a budget hawk 
or a budget watchdog? <laughs> Most people thought I was, and I allowed that reputation to go forward because it made my job easier. Probably the best sessions I had were when you had a shortfall of money and you could just say, hey, just there is no money, you know? So I didn't fight off that uh, that uh, connotation that was developed. My, my recollection. <laughs> When there would be uh, be hearings right in front, in front of your committee, it wouldn't matter if uh, you're a lobbyist or another lawmaker or a uh, university president, you could expect some tough questions from Luke Henley. Well, I think that may have been true. And I've heard people tell me that they want to buy a ticket to come to the time when I go in front of the Appropriations Committee <laughs> and ask for more money. And I'm going to sell popcorn because <laughs> I think I'll be a good <laughs> Yeah, when did Governor Holcomb ask you initially to to chair this effort? Gosh, the commission started up in September. The emergency of, order was August. Right. So he called. they called me about uh, August, and I said, gee, this, you know, you're a lame duck governor. You can go do what you want, play golf, play basketball, which he likes to do. I said, why would you want to get involved in this? And he said it's important. And, and as we all know, Governor Holcomb, he is not a demonstrative pound the table speech giver type of a guy. He's just a kind of a thorough, thoughtful person. He sees a bigger need and then he thinks somebody ought to deal with it. And I said, well, okay, if you think it's important, I'll give it a shot and I, I probably need to try to help you. So that's how we got started on that. And we had, and Dr. Box can elaborate on this, but we had a really good commission, very diversified. We had two county commissioners, we had a mayor, we had people from the healthcare industry, the hospitals, uh, local rural, health providers. Rural Health Association, Minority Health Coalition, Public Health Association, uh, Bowen School of Workforce and Policy was there, which is workforce is a very important part of this. And we can't forget Dr. Judy Monroe. That's right. Prior health officer here in the state of Indiana from 2005 to 2010, and now the CEO of the CDC Foundation. So she brought a great national and even international uh, flair to this. And then um, former Congresswoman Susan Brooks was our citizen advisor for this. So she, at the federal level, was involved with workforce and emergency preparedness. So again, that national flair and, and that overlook of what other states have done in this area. But Governor Holcomb chose you to be a co-chair. Was this a strategic hire from Governor Holcomb? Was his feeling that, boy, if I can get Luke Kenley on board, and Luke Kenley says we need to spend money, people will believe it. Well, that may be his motivation because he did say at the opening press conference, uh, at one point he turned to me and he said, and your job is to persuade the legislature that we need to do this. So at that point, I wasn't even persuaded myself. Oh, that's pretty <laughs> transparent. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Okay. Well, I think in, in part, you know, it was like, if, if you can lay this out, this case for this, in the next 10 months, 12 months, and Senator Kenley and some of our conservative county commissioners that were on the board and the mayor can all buy into this and understand this, this is going to be a much easier thing to get support around the state of Indiana. This is an impossible task, but quickly summarize. What did what did the commission find? Wow. So I, I think everybody, number one, thinks about the funding, right? That Indiana's um, state funding is about $55, $51, $55 per capita. 
Um, and whereas nationally at that time, it's about $91. But what we heard clearly is we don't- That's just, the average. Right, the right. average. Mm-hmm. We don't just need increased funding. We need to know that's going to be a consistent funding. That's going to be there year after year, just like grant funding comes and goes, and we hire people and then we have to let them go. We need to be able to develop and design the infrastructure for our public health department to make sure we can address these issues. Um, and then when we looked at governance and uh, workforce, it was really important from a governance standpoint Unanimously, the commission agreed that this should lay in the hands of our local public health people to deliver these services. They're the ones who are trusted at the local level. They know their community. They know their elected officials the best. And we wanted to be able to carry on what had started in the COVID pandemic, and that is everyone coming to the table and addressing whatever the issue was, which at the time was COVID, which includes hospital systems and not-for-profit organizations, our elected officials, um, our school superintendents, and public health all working together on the issue. Workforce is a problem prior to the pandemic and a huge problem after the pandemic um, in both public health and clinical workforce. And so we really need to not only be able to look at where the gaps are in workforce now with EMS and home visitors and other things, but how do we address increasing that workforce across the state of Indiana, not just for clinical health, but also for public health? Because if if I just do this for public health, clinical health in the time of need will come and hire those people right out of my public health system. So very important that we're working together and starting to anticipate what are the needs of health going forward in our state. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought up workforce. So when people hear, oh, $250 million a year, that's not just to buy more stuff. That's to employ people. Oh, it's mostly building out employment and workforce, training workforce, making sure sometimes it's equipment, sometimes it's upgrading um, our local public health security, you know, within their their own software and their own computer systems. We have people that are actually at risk of not being able to be connected to the state anymore because their security system is not safe enough for that connection to the state itself. So how do we improve that? And that's where the Office of Data Integration and, and Analytics comes in also. Take me to a, a local public health, a county public health office in a in a relatively small county. I, I don't know if Park County is small enough, but I, just, I tend to go there a lot. What does not receiving enough funds to carry out their mission look like? So what that looks like is sometimes their full-time employees are zero to two. And I've literally had a, a public health department, one of the Two people that were hired there said, well, I'm the emergency preparedness and I'm the food safety person and I'm the person who does the septic permitting. I don't really understand food safety, so we just don't do that. So that's the kind of thing that we want to be able to support local public health to have at least a minimum number of individuals that are workforce there in their public health department to do at least these statutorily required things that are required in in Indiana code to be done. So- being able to help fund those efforts on, on the local level will have a cumulative effect of being able to bring up Hoosier's health. That's the idea. That's the <laughs> okay. concept. Exactly. How about that? And and a lot of it with public health is, is prevention of injury and chronic disease, right? We know how difficult it is to get someone who is already addicted to crystal meth or to heroin off of that, or how hard it is to get someone who's even addicted to nicotine and has been a smoker all of their life. So Public health is really get on the front end of this, work with our schools and our students and our younger people to help them to understand the long-term implications of this. I mean, trauma and injury is the number one cause of death for Hoosiers ages 1 to 44, and a lot of people don't realize that. So the recommendation, as I read it, 
the state would increase annual public health funding from about $50, $55 per capita per person to 91. Is that where it stands right now? And that's an increase of about 65%. That gets you to about $242 million per year in extra expenditures. And that gets you to about the national average. For 2019. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so just to make sure I get this, the money would be funneled to public health departments, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily have to do it. Did I read that correctly? That it is not mandatory. Right. So they right now, there's about $6.9 million per year that is given, divided amongst our 94 local health departments. So what we've asked, and Senator Kenley and our elected officials believe this was very important, and I agree, they've convinced me of this is that the local elected officials, our county commissioners, would have the ability to opt in or opt out of taking these additional funds. And if they do take these additional funds, then their agreement is that they will provide these basic core services, uh, which we've worked on the local health department with the local health departments to be able to develop what are those core services that we'd like to see. We need for this to be a partnership arrangement. And so we want them, the county council, to take an actual vote of we will participate in the program for a five-year period, and then the state will provide the funding. And then we'll put together a memorandum of understanding with the Department of Health about what will be the objectives and the goals and how we meet our statutory obligations and all these things. And so in the past, one of our more successful programs in Indiana has been our road funding formula for local government. And in that situation, the state pays about and manages about 80% of the funds, and then the locals have to come up with a local match somewhere between 10 and 20%. So in this case, we're shooting for a similar percentage. And of course, all of this is going to the legislature with the idea that the legislature is going to put its stamp on these things. And if we can get them sold on the basic concept, we hope it will just do nothing but improve the product. So the locals need to come up with their 20% match. And then we think that'll make them a better partner. Uh, Not only will the health department be affected, but the county council and the county commissioners, all of a sudden, they'll have a reason to be interested and involved in what's going on. They work with the state, and Dr. Box has a system put together across the state of how you develop some technical advisors and some expertise, because you may not need uh, a certain type of food handling inspector you may not need a whole person in all these small counties. You may need somebody just covers four or five counties. So that's how you need to have the flexibility to do it right. So I think it's almost as important to say, here is a structure and a partnership arrangement that we are developing and proposing. The money is obviously critical to making it happen, but I think the structure and the partnership arrangement is just as important as the money in order to make this a success. So there's a, there's a, Certainly a public health, I mean, sort of an inherent good in making sure uh, Hoosiers are more healthy. There also is an economic argument. And I, I assume that that is an important part of, of persuading the legislature to go along with some or all of this. What is the economic argument? So I think that's a, a really good point. And, and in all honesty, when we look at the life expectancy in Indiana, it's been going down since 2010. In fact, our life expectancy in 2019 of 77 years is almost two full years below the average life expectancy in the United States. And most importantly, that 
varies dramatically across counties. So there's quite a lot of disparity there, with many of those counties um, having the lower life expectancy being our rural counties. The other very important thing is when we look at our life expectancy of our Hoosiers ages 65 and older, that has been going up, which is great because those time-sensitive emergencies like heart attack and strokes, we are doing better in our hospital systems and addressing those. Unfortunately, it's the life expectancy of our Hoosiers ages 25 to 64 that has been declining. And that, if you think about it, is our workforce. It's our families that should be having children and continuing to populate the state of Indiana. That's our economic security. What's happening to those folks? Because that's me. Yeah. So that's a very good question. So a lot of that is trauma and how we address and how quickly we can uh, respond to trauma. Some of it is suicide. Some of it is overdose would be the biggest ones. Wow. Trauma okay. and injury. And I would assume also just making sure people go to work every day. Well, you know, one further economic argument is we're trying to attract good companies to come to Indiana. It's a big initiative of ours. So if they come and they can move into a community that not only has people that are educated to be able to perform the jobs, but if you have them so that they have a healthy community, that's going to lower the healthcare cost for the company, maybe the company plan. It's going to give you a healthier, commu healthier community, so it helps the employees. And overall, it just contributes to the, the better economic structure of our state. And the healthcare costs to those companies will be less once fewer of their employees are smokers. You know, they're there and present and healthy when they're working. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and my discussion with Luke Kenley and Dr. Christina Box about how to increase public health funding. So what is, what's the battle plan? <laughs> Tell me what the battle plan is. How is this effort to enact these recommendations going to play out over the legislative session, which begins, help me out. The 9th, 9th of uh, January, I believe. Well, basically... To put it in its most simple form, we have one goal, and that is to get 26 votes in the Senate and 51 votes in the House. We need to pass the bill, and we need to get the appropriation. And so we've been out working literally since we started last year. We had public listening sessions all over the state, gave people an opportunity without our comment just to tell us what they thought. Uh, Dr. Box and I have made in excess of 40 presentations to all kinds of organizations from business units to like the Manufacturers Association to school boards, associations and county government people and hospital people. So we've been doing kind of a public campaign about that. And now we're in the Senate and Senator Charbonneau, who is the chairman of the health committee in the Senate, has agreed to carry our bill and we're finding people to um, uh, go on the bill with him. And we're talking, Dr. Box just came to hear from the state house where we visited with the senator and we're trying to answer their questions and get them up to it. And the difficulty comes in 
from the fact that, number one, we're just coming off of a pandemic where you had some wildly differing opinions about health mandates or wearing a mask or have to get a shot or what businesses can be open. I mean, this was a gut-wrenching experience for the whole nation. It doesn't really relate to what we're doing only in the sense that we need to be prepared for the future, but it that is hanging over the top of this. And then we have, with supermajority legislature composed of Republicans, they're kind of uh, look as- askance at any government spending program and justifiably so. And I was one of those guys and still kind of am one of those guys. So we've got to persuade them that this fits into the picture of what our basic presentation is of how it's a good, good thing for Indiana to be good at, to, to do well. And so that's our sales pitch. It's a return on investment. It's a producer of much better health. It focuses uh, in particular on our younger people, which is uh, we're not doing too well with that right now. We have many schools where you don't have sight exams or hearing exams or uh, even dental checks. And I think we all thought that schools all did those things. That's kind of a statutory uh, obligation, but it's slipped away in as other pressures have come up. So those are the kind of things we're going to work on. And we're, we're hoping to put the bill in the Senate first, sell them on the substance of the bill and the subject matter. Same time, the governor's going to propose to the House when he sends his budget request in, he's going to have an appropriation request in there for this program. The only thing I would add to that is I think it's really important uh, that we spend a lot of time educating people about what public health really is. It is not about mask mandates and immunizations. It is about sanitation and food safety and septic permitting and, you know, rat infestations and the ability to do maternal child health support, get people connected to have that access to care that they need. So it has been around, you know, since I think we started in 1897 was the State Department of Health. And we have been doing this type of um, public health for that many years. Does anybody question you, Luke, and say, you know, why wasn't this a priority when you were in charge? Well, you know, I think that's a really good question because when I got to the commission and we started receiving these findings and reports from the different areas, I was literally shocked at the condition that we were in. And I think it's it's just this evolution that um, almost since World War II, we from time to time passed down a mandate. For example, when I look in the mandates I see here, remediate meth and clandestine labs, that's obviously in the last 10 or 20 years that that's happened. So we would hand down a mandate, but we didn't think about how do you fund this up. And we didn't also think about how important healthcare is to our entire lifestyle. We have in today's world, we have so much more ability to have people not only have a prolonged lifestyle, but actually a healthier lifestyle and a more physically active one. And so I think um, we've lagged behind that issue and the pandemic kind of hit us in the face and said, you need to pay attention to these things. Okay, so we have a few reactions <laughs> already from Republican lawmakers. Uh, we have Senate President Rod Bray, uh, Republican of Martinsville, said, uh, at least initially, he couldn't see the Senate allocating the full amount recommended by the commission 
although he agreed more funding was needed to improve the state's public health outcomes. He also said he wasn't sure if local health departments would be able to handle a significant influx of money. So how would you respond to that? Those are both good questions. They're fair questions. And Senator Bray has actually sat in on two of our briefings now, and I can tell that he sees the value in what we're doing, but he's expressing the skepticism that a good lawmaker is going to have about before we do something and spend a lot of money that affects the entire public, uh, we want to be convinced that we're doing the right thing. So I don't take his reaction as a sign of um, we don't want to do this. I take it as a sign of how do we do this and do it right and make sure we have accountability? And are you prepared to train all these people and have the whole system be pulled together? And so I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to answer those questions. And Senator Bray's uh, points are very legitimate. But um, I find his willingness to listen encouraging in that he is, and I can see the more we meet with people, the more they begin to realize this is not necessarily a partisan issue. This is really an issue that's pretty basic to all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the logistical element Absolutely. of getting this worked out, I mean, it seems like well, the devil is in those and details. And a phase-in of the funding is almost inevitable. But we felt as a commission that we owed the legislature an honest estimate of what a full-blown program might cost going forward. And so that number that we have sitting out there, the $242 million, is kind of a blend of the national average and our own evaluation of maybe what we need to spend in order to get there. And Dr. Box and her people, to their credit, have already spent several months now since the commission reached its conclusions trying to lay out plans of how you do this and what you need and what kind of groups you need to have, getting feedback from even local health uh, officers about what are the real priorities. So I think we're really working hard to be prepared on that front. And I think although we are absolutely committed that delivery of public health is best at the local level, we heard clearly, even from our local health departments, that they needed additional help from the State Department of Health. And what I you know, talk to my team about all the time is, if we believe the CDC exists to support state uh, public health, then we as the State Department of Health exist to support local public health, the boots on the ground. And we need to organize ourselves as a Department of Health and make sure that our commitment, both in resources and time and money, is in supporting that. So we have developed a regional infrastructure at the northern, central, and southern area to support things like um, consult expertise that they don't necessarily need in every county every day. So that may be certain training options. It may be legal consultation. It may be getting grants and, and writing to grants and, and then reporting on it. It's oftentimes data analytics and how to develop a dashboard, supporting them if they want to become an accredited public health department or get reaccredited. There are things we heard clearly that they needed help with, and that is what we've set out and as we've talked with um, Senator Mishler and others, it's clear that they understand we have people dedicated from a finance standpoint and an auditing standpoint um, and a and and a kind of developing your plan for how you want to address these particular core measures at the state level that will be there assisting our local health departments. Gotcha. Okay. So there are practical questions about the program. Todd Houston, Republican Fishers, has more of a philosophical concern. Uh, he says Hoosiers need to take personal responsibility for their health instead of relying on government 
solutions. He says there's no great shock that how you eat and exercising affects your health. First and foremost, it's personal responsibility. What is your response to that? I think that's a, a an absolutely important point because it's just like my mother who was addicted to nicotine and smoked her whole life, tried to quit multiple, multiple times, and I saw how difficult it was and was never able to do that. But if we can get to that child in school and talk to them about nicotine, for instance, been on the front end of the vaping crisis that we had where we went from 5% of our seniors saying that they were smoking on a daily basis, basically smoking when they graduated, um, to now 21% of kids saying that they were vaping or smoking on a regular basis. If we had been on the front end of prevention there, we might have decreased that next generation of Hoosiers that are nicotine addicted. So, and, and the other thing that I would say is that it does take time sometimes when you reach out to people. So for instance, our women who are pregnant and have substance use disorder, it's so critical not just for their health, but for their baby's health. It's the number one cause of maternal mortality is overdose. It is a number one cause of elevated cost in the NICU besides preterm birth, and oftentimes it leads to preterm birth. But in reality, it may take eight or nine times reaching out to that woman to get her engaged. And for instance, FSSA's Pregnancy Promise Program. And, and on average, it may take that long. But when we do get them engaged, the data shows clearly that they not only remain in recovery, but they have a lower mortality rate, that their children have a lower infant mortality rate. So it is worth the effort to continue, especially with some of our specialty populations. I agree with the speaker's comment about personal responsibility. And I think our plan is structured not only to provide accountability for the spending of the dollars back up to the state, but that it's uh, that it will reinforce the idea that when you're working with young people, I mean, we all, all our children that we've all raised have to be taught all these elements of personal responsibility, of integrity, of don't steal somebody else's stuff. I mean, these are these are learned skills, not necessarily innate skills. My reaction when, when I started thinking about those comments, just an observation, you know, for somebody who lives in Marion County and who has a lot of uh, resources, that is, is a different advantage uh, than somebody who lives in a county that doesn't have all those resources necessarily, where, I mean, for being able to find the help that you need in order to be a self-starter. Right. So 36, for instance, 36 of our counties do not have inpatient obstetrical services now. And that may be something, unfortunately, that continues to grow as more of our critical access hospitals find it difficult to provide that. So how can we as a as a state try to provide that women's health care closer to home for women? They still have to go to a different county to deliver, but how can we deliver obstetrical care closer to home so they can actually be engaged in that and not miss an entire half day of work to be able to do that? Or how do we deliver the full spectrum of contraceptive counseling and, and the ability to access that? pap smears, mam mammography, et cetera. How do we keep that population healthy by providing that access? I, th I think th that you've hit your comment is very appropriate because I think in actuality, the whole time I was in the legislature, we always used to talk about, well, what can we do for rural Indiana? And we had a hard time coming up with ways that we could show them that we were taking care of them and doing things. I think this is not only the greatest rural health initiative, but I think this is probably the great biggest rural initiative for helping those populations that I've seen since I started in the legislature. The uh, the other main current that I feel like I've heard so far is that 
hey, we might be headed into a recession and we we might have $6 billion in, in the bank account right now and, and, and surplus, but we need to maintain that cushion. And I, and I don't know exactly how you guys have suggested even funding this program. I don't know if, if you thought it was going to come out of the the uh, surplus or something else. Maybe that's something to address. You know, this is where I stepped in with my hat as the former appropriations chair. And we did not recommend a specific funding source. We did not absolutely recommend even a specific amount because I feel like that is for the legislature as the representative of the people to decide how best to do this. My analysis says that... uh, Indiana is in so much better fiscal shape than most states that if we want to do this badly enough, we will be able to figure out a way to fund it up. Now, that sounds like a lot of money and particularly an increase on top of our present budget, but we put much more than that amount in each year into our school funding formula as an increase. And the money we give to higher education, both in terms of buildings that we're building and in terms of operation costs is more than this amount of money. And I think back the last time we went through a kind of an unusual change in prioritization like this was when we broke Department of Child Services away from the Family and Social Services Administration because we didn't think there was quite a a good enough focus on the child services programs. And so we actually couldn't figure out how much money we needed to put into that. And so Mitch Daniels was the governor Everybody knows that Mitch was as tight-fisted as anybody could be, threw manholes around like they were nickels, you know. And we just trusted Mitch to take the $400 million increase that we put in there and do whatever the right amount was and just revert the rest of it back. But that's an exercise where we made a pretty major commitment to an increase in funding in the last 15 years that would be a parallel in my mind. So the 65% increase... And spending that came out of the commission report, that that it's liquid. It it could change. You, it, it's this it's is potentially the, up to the legislature. To this decide. is the legislature's decision to make, and we are lobbying them not only with the idea of showing what we think the need is and how important the need is and what our shortcomings have been in the past, but we are trying to tell them here's what we estimate we think the cost of doing a truly good program will be. And it's up to them uh, to first buy into the concept of let's do a a good public health initiative. And then secondly, let's fund it this way. Let's let's phase it in so much at a time, or let's get in there as quick as we can and get to the number we need to be at. And I mean, this is their call. Yeah. Who currently is the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee? Ryan Mishler. Is that the guy you need to get to? Well, he's certainly one of them. <laughs> if, if we have a top 10 list, he's clearly at the top of that list. <laughs> so you so you know, you, you speak Ryan Mishler's language. You you should be able to. You know, Ryan, is, a good case. Ryan and I worked together closely uh, and um, and I kind of trained him for that job. And I used to say to him, now, if I walk out of the building and a bus hits me, you're going to have to take over tomorrow and he's he's quite a bit younger than I am, and he always thought I was kidding, but he didn't realize that that day was going to come sooner than he thought. He he does a terrific job. He's a good businessman. He has a good sense of balance. He comes. He represents both rural and urban counties, so he's going to be fine. Speaker Houston is very well prepared for his position. 
uh, President Pro Tem Bray is, is a fine person, good values, very open-minded, always willing to listen to your arguments, just trying to help provide and steer that leadership. Uh, Jeff Thompson, the new Ways and Means Chair. I worked with Jeff on the school funding formula for many years. Jeff is a very thorough person and a very fair person. So I'm not worried uh, about whether there are some political dynamic here that's going to say, well, you'll never get to first base just because of other issues. These guys are all out to do the best they can for Indiana. I'm pretty comfortable that if we if we do a good enough job, we'll make our case. All right. Well, this is going to be fascinating to see. Fun to watch. Best of luck to you. Engage. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks again to Luke Kenley and Dr. Christina Box. You can find more about the findings of the Governor's Public Health Commission at ibj.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, Westside business leaders had high hopes that the Indigo rapid transit line slated for West Washington Street would usher in a wave of economic development and improved infrastructure. Now that the route has been partially rerouted, Taylor Wooten reports that local leaders fear they've missed out on a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Also in this week's paper, John Russell has the story of a diabetes medication that Eli Lilly and company abandoned 12 years ago that since has been resurrected by another pharma firm and has become one of the hottest new drugs on the market. And Susan Ort reports on an effort at Purdue University to train policymakers, diplomats, and more on the ethics of technology. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IPJ or online at ibj.com. I will say that it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.